think of history, what immediately comes to mind? For me, it's not science or art or literature, technology, or even government. It's the wars of history that take center stage against everything else that has to offer. It's the story of red versus blue, one side versus the other that represents history. War is the perfect story, where one side fights against another side for something greater, such as freedom or against tyranny. People genuinely care about conflict where there are two parties fighting against one another. It's wired into our brains to think in such a way. This is Good Enough Guess, and we're on Episode 1 of the Peloponnesian War, Part 1. General George S. Patton once said, Battle is the most magnificent competition in which a human being can indulge. It brings out all that is best. It removes all that is base. All men are afraid in battle. It isn't that other aspects of history are more or less important than military history. It's just that war is the most enticing. It's just the poster boy of history. We as people who look towards the past for stories and advice for the future recognize this, that science and art and technology and literature and government are important to the human story, but that war will always seem more important to the vast majority of people. And thus, it should be studied with this in mind. Herodotus and Helicarnassus once said, He represented the results of the inquiry carried out by Herodotus and Helicarnassus. The purpose is to prevent the traces of human events from being erased by time, and to preserve the fame of the important and the remarkable achievements produced by both Greeks and non-Greeks. Among the matters covered is, in particular, the cause of the hostilities between Greeks and non-Greeks. Although it may not be the most famous war in history, the Peloponnesian War is perhaps the most archetypical war in history. The war between Athens and Sparta was a conflict that perhaps began the story of the red versus blue, the story of two sides fighting against each other out of circumstance and not culture. They fight each other as enemies to be destroyed. Thucydides of Athens once said, I wrote the history of the war between the Peloponnesians and the Athenians, beginning at the moment that it broke out, and believing that it would be more worthy of revelation than any other war that had preceded it. have to be a great battle for victory between two mortal enemies. Sometimes it's two players playing a game of chess, where every move brings you closer to conflict. 
So Sparta and Athens fought in 431 BC because they found each other a threat to their existence due to their enemies' actions. says, The growth of the power of Athens and the alarm which this inspired in Sparta made war inevitable. So they didn't fight because their cities were somehow rivals destined to battle. They didn't fight because one held the strategic control over a valuable location. They didn't fight for prestige or honor or the glory of conquest. They fought because both cities took moves towards power that threatened the other. Both of them took a calculated gamble on fighting, a cost gain calculation. What we see here is much like how modern wars begins. The conflict between two city-states began with small actions to test the water of peace. It's simple conflict escalation. We can see both parties look to see how far they could go before provoking a response. For us, this is just how Germany annexed Austria and invaded Czechoslovakia before any war was declared on Germany from the Allies. forms of history, military history is studied through the written records of people who took the effort to preserve what happened to future generations, generations like us in the modern day. The Greek classical period is one of the best known and highly studied periods in history because of that sheer amount of work of people from that time period. People living among the wars and events of that day wrote down and documented what happened. To the extent that people living 2,500 years in the future can understand the events month by month, day by day. Here, among the events of the classical period, history began as an art form to be studied in an academic setting. Back then, people took the time and the care to learn what is really happening, instead of just trusting the king or whatever people had to say. These authors traveled the world to take a first-hand account of what happened in the world. Maybe the greatest of these authors, Herodotus, was a man who lived in the time of the Peloponnesian War. He attempted to document the Persian Wars just after their conclusion. To us, Herodotus was an interesting character in himself, for being the first person completely devoted to the study of history in history. Richard Claverhouse Jebb states, Before the Persian crisis, history had been represented among the Greeks only by local or family traditions. With him, the spirit of history was born into Greece, and his work, called after the Nine Muses, was indeed the first utterance of Cleo. Father of History 
for taking a critical viewpoint in his studies and using critical evidence for his claims. Yet, he was also called the father of lies, for using any story, no matter how weird, when there wasn't one credible enough for explaining what happened. Another one of these authors of early historiography was Thucydides, an Athenian historian who also lived during the Peloponnesian War. He solely documented the Peloponnesian War and is by far its greatest source. Thucydides was the first historian who, instead of ascribing the events around to fate or destiny, ascribed them to natural causes and factors. Thucydides of Athens states, To hear this history rehearsed, for that there be inserted in it no fables, shall be perhaps not delightful. But he that desires to look into the truth of things done, and which, according to the condition of humanity, may be done again, or at least their like, shall find enough herein to make him think it profitable. however, wasn't the perfect storyteller. He was an Athenian general who had been exiled for his loss in battle. He was biased against the Athenians and slightly towards the, the Spartans. His text, The History of the Peloponnesian War, is the greatest academic source on the Peloponnesian War, writing his book real-time from the events around him. As with all the stories of war and history, the Peloponnesian War demands the prelude to the story. For us to understand it, the story demands that the listener know what its world was like, how it worked, and what its people were like. We can look back to when the Greek cities of Athens and Sparta were among a collection of hundreds of other city-states. All of them varied in size, wealth, and power. These cities were called the polis. The polis were small, independent, and isolated communities, where one polis had an army, a government, and an entire economy, and a whole system of social classes and finances, all while having a population of under 200,000 people. The polis means city in ancient Greek. For us as the listeners, the story of the war will mention complex and interesting characters such as the Persian Empire, Argos, Megara, Corinth, and Naxos. In this world, the cities of Greece fight conflicts between each other on a regular basis. No conflict is ever too serious or too catastrophic. For hundreds of years before our story, cities lose and gain territory all the time, and complete destruction is rarely a thing. Mark Cartwright says, Warfare moved away from one-off battles fought in a few hours to long, drawn-out conflicts which could last for years, the most important being the Persian Wars, and the Peloponnesian Wars, and the Corinthian War. Here, 
conflict is fought using heavy infantry units called hoplites, fighting in shield wall formation. Hoplites are soldiers that fight in predetermined locations at predetermined times. These were fierce, highly trained warriors with enough money to pay for an aspis, the hoplite shield, and enough social status to join the army's exclusive hoplite units. Cities sent diplomats to decide where a location was for a battle in the time of day of the predetermined fight. Our story begins in a world where Sparta and Athens are the leaders of the Hellenic world for the majority of this period, taking control of their surroundings in this time of hoplite warfare. They have the money and power to wield the armies to dominate. They demand financial tributes from their surrounding cities, unlike Persia or Egypt. When our story comes to the year 499 BC, the people of Ionia, who are Greeks under Persian rule and modern-day Turkey, begin the revolt from imperial rule. Our characters are not Anatolians, rather Greeks, who left after the collapse of the Mycenaean civilization. Herodotus of Halicarnassus says, The whole Hellenic stock was then small, and the last of all of its branches and the least regarded was the Ionian, for it had no considerable city except Athens. These were people who had left their homeland from war, crossing a sea and landing into an entirely different continent. Over the hundreds of years that passed, they changed, yet strongly kept their fierce Greek identity. These Ionians were subjugated by Persians in 547 BC by Cyrus the Great, who conquered Anatolia to the Aegean Sea. Cyrus conquered from the Lydian Empire, who ruled Ionia for hundreds of years before that. Cyrus the Great states, I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, mighty king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four quarters, the son of Cambyses, great king, king of Ansan, grandson of Cyrus, the great king, king of Ansan, descendant of Tyepses, great king. Cyrus the Great, as a historical figure, is a man who forever changed the Middle East. He interconnected the world and had specially brought the East to Greece through his empire's vast trade system. As you can imagine, these people yearn for independence and thus they choose to strike at a time where they see the Persian Empire at its weakest. We can understand how the Ionian cities rebelled from the Persian Empire in 499 BC when the city of Miletus begins a revolt up and down the rocky coast of the sun-baked Anatolians. Their leader, the Greek Aristocrus, fails to conquer Naxos in the Aegean Sea for Persia, and he rebels, sensing his immediate removal from power. Aristocrus is a Persian puppet tyrant. 
He was an interesting, interesting character, being that he switched sides from Persia to the Ionian independence cause. Such a rebellion lights the Ionian cities like a fire all across the coast. This brave rebellion is crushed by Persian forces after Athens tries to support their Greek allies across the Aegean Sea. Herodotus of Halicarnassus states, Darius, Hymenes, and Otans, all of them Persian generals and married daughters of Darius, pursued those Ionians who had marched to Sardis, and drove them to their ships. After this victory, they divided the cities among themselves and sacked them. the mighty Persian Empire for a higher cause, for a greater good. They fought for freedom and independence, quite the opposite of what we see in the Peloponnesian War. Yet the Empire of Persia notices that Athens allied with Ionia and sent military aid to the Ionian armies. In perhaps a combination of revenge and pride, Persia launches an invasion of the Greek mainland for the Athenian support of the Ionian revolt. Another character across the Aegean Sea, King Darius launches the invasion from Anatolia, crossing the Hellespont, and beginning the next chapter of our story. He fights the Greeks for justice for this moral wrong done against the King of Kings. Darius the Great states, I am a friend of the right, of wrong I am not a friend. It is not my wish that the weak should have harm done by the, by the strong, nor is it my wish that the strong have harm done him by the weak. To the man who is a follower of the lie, I am no friend. Persian Wars and the inevitable war between the victors.